All right, most of the time when I teach Bible class, I write my own stuff and I teach on something that I think would be good for you and that I'm interested in enough and that I haven't found something really, really good on. So I try to draw the best of things from a lot of places. Um, but on occasion, I'll come across a book that's so good that I don't think I need to supplement it with anything really. And I prefer that everyone in our church just read the book, but I know that probably won't happen. So then I try to teach through the book. Um, often I'll just do that in one or two settings and I'll just walk through the main concepts. This time, however, we're going to take, I think, five weeks to walk through a book that was recently published by Timothy Keller called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? So I would think anyone would benefit from reading this book. I certainly did. Um, so if you find this class helpful, pick the book up. Or if you want to track along even more carefully, you'll notice at the front of the handout that there's the class schedule. And I've put in parentheses the chapters and the page numbers that I'm going to be teaching on every single week. So um, the first few weeks are a lot shorter by the time we get to October 1, you'll notice that we're going to cover a lot of material. So you have plenty of time to kind of ramp into the book as we work through it, if you're interested in that. If you are paying attention to your notes, you'll notice that in parentheses, there's often a number following a quote. That's just a parenthetical citation showing you where in the book that quote came from. I don't want to plagiarize, so I've tried to be really clear whenever I'm quoting from him. And then on occasion, I'll have some other quotes in there from a study Bible or, or another book, but mostly we're looking at his stuff. But to start, I want to draw your attention to Matthew 18. I am going to read from a translation that we don't typically preach or teach from, the New Living Translation, because I think narratives in the New Living Translation are really helpful to read, and it might draw your attention to certain features that you're not used to. Uh, so follow along in whatever translation you have, and, and maybe this will just give you another look at it. But in Matthew 18, 15, Jesus starts to teach his disciples on how to deal with sin in the Christian community. Uh, formally, we call this church discipline, but he just starts it out by saying, if a believer sins against you, Go to him and point out the offense. So he's putting the initiative on Christians to pursue reconciliation. And when you're going to point out the offense, I think he's expecting his followers to go with a demeanor of forgiveness, not going to point out their offense with a demeanor of vengeance. Um, I think we could all agree on that. Does anyone think Jesus is saying, go to the person who sinned against you so you can rake them over the coals? No, it's so you that, that you can uh, pursue reconciliation, which can only happen first through forgiveness. You raise your hand, Julie. I don't disagree that it's the mission of reconciliation, but I think sometimes we overlook the sin because we want to be careful about it. But I guess, yeah. And there's no doubt. Yeah. Julie, you are tracking precisely with one of the conundrums of forgiveness. How can forgiveness and justice go together? That's, that's one of the main points of this book, is how, how that can happen. And I think there have been many um, less than helpful Christians teaching about forgiveness that's basically sweep something under the rug. Forgiveness means forgetting, so just act as if nothing ever happened. Um, but even from the verse that we just read, we know Jesus doesn't approve of that edition of forgiveness because he says to point out the offense. 
you, you can't forgive what hasn't been named. You know, this is one of the principles we'll come across. And a lot of people live with a low level of bitterness humming along in their life because they felt guilty about naming the wrong that they, they experienced or that they did. And, and so you can't forgive it, nor can that person truly repent if it's all being swept under the rug. You're pointing out, I think, one of the most important concepts of, of this book uh, that, that we'll come across. But the, the reason we know that Jesus is wanting people to point out someone's sin, who sinned against them, with a demeanor of forgiveness, is because of Peter's question that comes right after Jesus gives some instruction this way. Because Peter asks him, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? So Peter's saying, you know, the rabbis of our day, they say you need to forgive someone up to three times and then you don't owe them anything else. So Peter's thinking, as a good follower of Jesus, I'm willing to forgive up to seven times, the perfect number. And if someone keeps sinning against me after that, then I'm, I'm, nev- I'm not going to forgive them. But Jesus replies, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Um, and we'll talk about this later. If you're just doing the math and now you have a little book in your pocket and every time you forgive the person, you count down from 49, you're not doing forgiveness. Jesus is not giving you 49 times and, you know, and then it's done. He's saying completion times completion, never, never end in your forgiving demeanor. So then he illustrates um, the kingdom way of forgiveness. What does the kingdom of God teach us about forgiveness? This is a parable that Jesus gives. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to grab, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. That's a tough parable. Um, We'll consider that primarily this morning. What is happening in that parable and how it influences our theology and practice of forgiveness. Before we talk about it more, though, I want to explain why I believe that a class on forgiveness in Keller's work warrants our consideration. The first is that as I read through Forgive, I discovered some clarifications about the biblical concept of forgiveness that have been absent and that have not been clear to me prior to reading this book. So even though I grew up in a Christian home 
And even though I serve as a pastor, and even though I'm starting my ninth year of seminary studies, there were things that the Bible has to say about forgiveness that I had not thought about that in lacking those ideas of forgiveness from the Bible, I didn't have a very biblical picture of forgiveness. I was partway there, and I think a lot of us are, but my understanding of forgiveness was somewhat immature. And as I look on my life and my relationships, I could sense that I needed to grow in that. So I wanted to go through the book another time for myself. And I, you know, once you start thinking about something, you start seeing it everywhere. Um, I started in conversations with people, realizing other people have some of these misunderstandings that I had, or they're facing challenges in forgiveness. Um, so I think if it's relevant for me, I, I know I'm not the best Christian in the world, but I think most Christians aren't the best Christian in the world, so maybe it would be relevant for the rest of us. Second, I believe that every Christian needs to cultivate the virtue of forgiveness in order to resemble Christ and to thrive spiritually. But most Christians have an uncomfortable relationship with forgiveness. Uh, and that's a problem because those who fail to forgive are also those who will fail to recognize the fullness of God's forgiveness. We'll talk about what that means more, but think about that. If you fail to give, you'll fail to recognize the fullness of God's forgiveness. Um, as a result, we remain captive to sin, not only our own, but we remain captive to the sins that others have committed against us that we're unwilling to forgive. We'll talk about this more in a few minutes, but when we fail to forgive someone, we give their sin a power over us and we stay captive to that offense. And for a lot of people that can remain for the rest of their lives. Um, I'll, I'll not give too many personal examples along the way. I'll maybe draw some from examples that I've heard other people talk about. But there's this pastor I know who was talking about a woman who showed up at the church he was preaching at, and he was preaching on God's forgiveness and the, rec the requirement for Christians to forgive other people. And she just said, I will not accept God's forgiveness because then I would have to forgive my husband. And she asked to talk to him later. She had a journal from their whole marriage with lists of every sin that her husband had committed against her. And that she's captive, whether he act, these are actual sins or not, let's assume that they were. Even if they were, she's kept herself captive to all of those sins by recording them and meditating on them and cultivating bitterness in her life. We remain captive to other people's sins and our own when we fail to forgive. Um, forgiveness, though, as I think we all know, doesn't come naturally for most of us. For some of you, it probably does. Uh, there's at least one individual in our church who it seems to me is just so forgiving. Um, I had an occasion to repent to him about something and he, he showed remarkable forgiveness and it seemed like it wasn't hard at all. I'm sure it was, but for most of us, it's really hard to forgive, but it's foundationally a gift of grace that must be cultivated in connection to the forgiveness that we have from God. For that reason, we all need to learn to offer forgiveness and to do so, we need to learn to receive forgiveness, primarily God's forgiveness. And, you know, briefly on that note, I'd suggest if when people do apologize to you um, and ask you for forgiveness and you dismiss their apology and say it's not a big deal, I would suggest you don't understand forgiveness. 
because you're not willing to name the problem. Um, <laughs> as I've been trying to become a more forgiving person and a more repentant person, I contacted someone this week from early in my life and apologized about something. And he said, oh, it's not a big deal. I probably contributed just as much. And it's like, well, how can I really repent if we're not really to name the sin? And how can he really forgive if he can't name it? Um, but then also I'd suggest that if, if you are really uncomfortable um, saying, would you forgive me? And, when, and hearing someone say, yes, I forgive you, in receiving that, I'd suggest you also might have some understandings and practices of forgiveness that need to change. And I hope this class will help that. Third, as Keller notes in the introduction, our present society feels a need to cancel and operates with an outraged sense of justice in the desire to make people atone for their sins. Um, even if when in casual conversation, whether you're talking about sports or a movie, we'll often use the phrase that someone redeemed themselves by their action. We live in a culture that doesn't promote forgiveness, but promotes self-atoning and self-redemption that's made almost impossible through certain levels of canceling. Um, have you ever thought in your mind after someone's sinned against you, I'm done with that person? You're just not willing to work on that relationship. That, that's our society's attitude, I think, towards forgiveness. In our society, there's a pursuit of justice apart from forgiveness that inevitably leads to vengeance. And one of the key takeaways from this class over the next several weeks that I hope you'll grab onto is that forgiveness and justice go together. But to find justice, you must first forgive. If you don't forgive first, you'll always pursue vengeance instead of justice. And the person who sinned against you will always know you're pursuing vengeance instead of justice. They can read the room. So forgiveness is the prerequisite to justice. But justice, forgiveness, includes justice. Okay, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Uh, presently, though, forgiveness is out, culturally speaking, unless it's part of virtue signaling public relations plans. So we've seen those all the time where people will offer an apology and, you know, you ask for forgiveness. But... It's not heartfelt often, but society forces people to do that and still doesn't offer forgiveness. Um, I wanted to kind of know what, what are some current attitudes towards forgiveness? So I went to the source of all knowledge, Twitter, and I typed in forgiveness to see what people were tweeting about or Xing about as it relates to forgiveness. I'm going to pull a few up. Some of them are partly right and partly wrong. Some are totally wrong, and, but I think they give sort of our culture's attitude towards forgiveness. Here's some. We'll see who will be crawling for forgiveness, sis. It might be too late by that time, though. Forgiveness is irrelevant. He still needs to face the legal consequences of his crimes. Please go be a rape apologist somewhere else because I promise I do not care. No one is owed forgiveness or understanding when you victimize someone. He is an abuser and deserves a fitting punishment for it. Simply put, forgiveness without choice or processing may turn to resentment and more self-blame. Prison isn't severe enough. Make these people beg for forgiveness and then eradicate them. It's too late. No second chances to apologize. Now it's personal. As you can tell, some of the issues related to forgiveness and justice are serious, and I think neither the church nor culture has handled them well, particularly when it comes to sexual abuse um, and other crimes. Uh, but I think that last line is indicative of a lot of personal attitudes towards forgiveness. It's too late, 
no second chances to apologize. Now it's personal. Because it's personal and it's happened more than once, no forgiveness. Um, one, one second and I'll get to you. Have, have you ever said the phrase or heard the phrase, if you were sorry, you wouldn't have done it in the first place? That is a statement that can never produce re- forgiveness and can never recognize repentance. You can only repent after you've sinned um, and you can be, only be sorry, really. Um, we will need to distinguish between being sorry is true repentance and being sorry that you have consequences now. And as I've already mentioned, forgiveness doesn't mean that there are no consequences. There's still justice, but this is all part of the biblical picture that doesn't have a black and white, one size fits all, but we have to think carefully and theologically in order to grab that biblical picture. Oh, I shouldn't have stopped you then. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's not forgive and forget. The truth is that God pays attention to these things, and even more so. Christians is welcome to recognize is that sometimes we have responsibility and different sectors of church and state have responsibility to carry out justice. So God doesn't make people wait till the final day. Um, but then what's even more challenging for all of us is to recognize that God also gives, offers forgiveness to the worst of sinners. Um, so we have to hold all of this together and it's, it's an uneasy tension. Um, and a lot of people aren't comfortable with that because it requires nuance. And um, we, we have to become comfortable with that and we have to work to understand it. Um, true forgiveness, as much as it's on the outs societally and as hard as it is, offers a moving display of the gospel when it is observed, even among those who find forgiveness unfavorable. Um, in a couple weeks, we'll, I'll reference Rachel Den Hollander. She was an Olympic gymnast who was severely abused um, sexually. And she led the group who essentially got this guy behind bars, Larry Nasser. And when she made her witness statement, somehow, and we'll learn how through the gospel, she was able to say, I forgive you. You need to go to jail. And I hope that someday you'll learn of God's forgiveness. That was moving even to the most anti-forgiveness people in our society. And when we can learn to forgive on the daily, and I think it's only by forgiving on the daily that we can forgive in those extreme moments, um, we display the gospel in our relationships. But we have to understand the gospel and receive it truly in order to live it out. Um, And that's true forgiveness is always sourced outside the self. True biblical forgiveness is always attached to God's forgiveness of us. Um, In contrast to personal struggles to offer forgiveness in a societal disposition against forgiveness, the biblical picture of a flourishing society is one in which people recognize the profound need to grant forgiveness and to receive forgiveness. I'd say that's true of our whole society. That's even more true of our local church society. Um, To find flourishing here, we have to be a granting and receiving forgiveness kind of a church. 
Throughout the Bible, and especially in the gospel narratives, we learn of the human need for forgiveness, and we discover its power. Forgiveness gets down to the bottom of things, to the alienation we feel from God and from ourselves because of our wrongdoing. Keller goes on to explain that Jesus offers a perfect love, a new identity, endless comfort, hope, and glory, and the doorway into all of that is to know forgiveness. So he urges, it's time to open that door and walk through it. So that's what we want to do this class, is to learn forgiveness, to walk through that door. So let's begin with this story of forgiveness failure. I already read it once, and now let's think about it. Matthew 18 here records Peter's query to Jesus regarding forgiveness when he asks about how many times he ought to forgive. In in Jesus's reply, his point was that we shouldn't even keep track of how many times we forgive someone. Uh, A note in the uh, Life Application Study Bible says, always forgive those who are truly repentant no matter how many times they ask. That's what Jesus is getting at. And and no, truly repentant. You know, this is complicated. We're going to have to think about this. Um, It's easy to adopt Peter's perspective. It's easy to identify situations in which an act of forgiveness, even with all its healing, life-transforming potential, can still be abused in a way that brings ruin to all those around. So we can feel like we're getting taken advantage of when we forgive. Our natural inclination then is to be disposed toward limiting our forgiveness. Yet Jesus responded to Peter, urging him to forgive generously. Um, Have you connected that term generous to your forgiveness? A lot, a generous amount of forgiveness. Um, To grant that there's, uh, refusing to grant that there's a limit to forgiveness. His answer reveals that there's no limit, no place for keeping a tally of forgivenesses already used up. Peter's question was misconceived. If one is still counting, one is not forgiving. Um, Jesus makes this case by telling the story, the parable that we read. Um, It's a movement from an offense to a request for patience to release, and then finally to a new offense. So let's track the progression of this story with some explanatory commentary along the way. I'm not going to reread the text, but it's in your notes and it's up there. Um, But it begins with the offense. Um, the, this man had racked up a debt. He prob- this, the picture probably is of a king who's funding his kingdom on his own family finances. That's, that's probably the picture. You know, so the, it's the king's money that causes the kingdom to run. And probably his financial steward has abused the finances of the kingdom. He probably hasn't managed the finances well, and now the king is, is calling him to account. That's probably the picture going on here. Um, So the master ordered the man and his family and everything he owned to be sold to pay the debt, even though it was a debt that could never be paid. He he massively mismanaged the finances of the kingdom, and now he's paying for it, so to speak, not by making restoration, but by basically going to debtor's prison. Um, The sale would, you know, the sale of this guy and his family and all of his property would hardly make a dent in what this guy owed the king. So it's... uh, we can't get into theories of justice here, but sometimes we settle for justice that makes a statement about what we value, even though it can't fully reconcile or recompense for for the damages done. That's often why people will take someone to court and they'll sue them for a dollar. You know, I think recently Taylor Swift did this to somebody, and but that dollar lawsuit could never recompense what was lost, but it does make a statement about what we value and what justice would be. That's all that's happening here. The statement about justice is being made. Um, 
So then this guy makes a request. He falls down, he begs for patience or long suffering, and he promises to pay it all back, even though everyone in the room knows he could never pay it all back. But the servant seems to demonstrate genuine sorrow and expresses not just a sentiment of regret, but offers to make restitution. Um, so then how does the king respond? He responds with a release. Um, he is going to be patient. He's going to be long-suffering, slow to anger. And that hints at the cost of forgiveness. It requires patience and long-suffering. Patience is the ability to bear suffering rather than to give it. So when you think of that term, to suffer long, it's to take the suffering on yourself for an extended amount of time rather than forcing the person who offended you to suffer. Um, it's the ability to bear suffering rather than to give it. To forgive someone's debt to you is to absorb the debt yourself. So here's the example. If a friend borrows your car, totals it through reckless driving, and hasn't any ability to remunerate you financially, that's a hard word to say, but remunerate you financially, you may say, I forgive you, but the price of the wrong does not evaporate into the air. You either find the money to buy a new car or you go without one. So do you see how you're paying the debt? They're not, if you forgive them, they're not paying it back. You're saying, I forgive you. I release you from your debt, but the debt doesn't evaporate. You take that debt on. Um, either way, forgiveness means the cost of the wrong moves from the perpetrator to you and you bear it. Forgiveness then is a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving rather than retaliating, you make a choice to bear the cost. Well, think about that more. But when we forgive somebody, we bear the hurt and the wrong against us and we don't force them to pay for it. Um, it's easy to imagine in a financial situation, but think about that relationally. Um, when someone speaks unkindly to you, what does it mean to bear that offense? It's not to retaliate or to make them feel bad about it and hang it over their head, but you bear that offense. Now we'll have to do something with that offense that connects to God, um, but that's for later. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I'd have to save my answer to the very end of the class uh, to give a full filled out one. But, but I think what I would say is that it's impossible for us to unknow something. So in some sense, they're just describing reality and they're pushing it back against the wrong notion that to forgive is to forget. You know, people say forgive and forget. And I think they're just trying to correct that, but without any theological resources. This class will give the theological resources to um, provide a kind of Christian bearing. You know, we're talking about we take the suffering on. That doesn't mean we forget it, but it does mean we stifle a, a retaliatory attitude towards it. So we bear the hurt, and whenever we have thoughts of retaliation or we start to see people through the light of that sin, we have to suffocate it. So it's more nuanced, but that's my initial... That. Yep. Um, but then there's a new offense. This guy who has just forgiven this enormous unpayable debt now goes to the guy who owes him pennies on the dollar and he violently attacks him. He grabs him by the throat. He assaults him and, and he forces him to pay up. And if he can't, 
then to debtor prison he goes. Um, did this guy, could this guy do this legally? Was it within his rights? Yes. But is he learning the lesson of forgiveness? No, he's not seeing who he is in light of the forgiveness he's received. That's part of the point of the parable. So then the other servants who see this tell the king and the king issues a verdict. And that is, how can anyone who has experienced the lavish mercy I showed you have such a cruel, ungenerous attitude towards others? And then Jesus ends with a chilling line. That's what my father, heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. The meaning is not hard to discern. The king is God himself. We are all the servant. The 10,000 talents or the millions of dollars is the infinite debt we owe God. God created us and sustains our lives every second. So we owe him supreme love, dependence, and obedience, but we do not give this to him, at least not often. There's not a person on earth who does not receive the mercy of God in some way, yet the way we treat other human beings falls infinitely short of the generous mercy with which God treats us. This parable teaches us that the kingdom of God, that is a people of God, are to be a forgiving people in light of the king's forgiveness of us. Yes, sir. Oh, you're fine. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think it's one a lot of people have. Do Christians owe forgiveness only to other Christians or to all people? And I'll, hopefully I can demonstrate this by the end of our five weeks, but it's too, uh, no, no, you're good. These are good questions because they get us thinking on where we need to go. But by the end of the five weeks, we'll see we need to model our forgiveness on God's forgiveness. And when we see Jesus, his final words are forgive who? Not the people who are loving him or identifying as God's people, but the ones who are crucifying him. So it's a good question. Uh, and then it raises a related question. Do we just have, are, do we just say, I'm ready to forgive, or can we actually forgive even when people aren't repentant? And by the end of the five weeks, we'll come to see that we ought to forgive and that it is possible to forgive even when someone hasn't asked us for forgiveness. Um, so... No, don't shut up because these are good questions and um, it's, it's helpful. But in the end, the story teaches us the difficulty of forgiveness, the definition of forgiveness, the dimensions of forgiveness, and our failures of forgiveness. This is what the rest of the lesson is that we're going to hit in the last um, 14 minutes. Um, the parable teaches us that forgiveness is difficult to receive and that it's difficult for us to grant. Um, I'll just leave that there, but it's very difficult for us to admit that we need forgiveness and it's often difficult for us to grant forgiveness to other people. One of the reasons you have the printout manuscript notes is so you can take a look at this and then hopefully you'll, you'll purchase his book. You know, I don't get any money if you do. So this is not a personal promo. It's just really, really good. Um, but forgiveness is difficult because of the costliness of forgiveness. That's the main idea there. And Jesus paid a great cost for our forgiveness. The definition of forgiveness. And if you take anything away from the class, I want you to grab onto these four aspects of forgiveness. And anytime you're thinking about it, 
um, I, uh, this, this may help you. Um, number one, name the, for, the offense. Forgiveness starts with truth telling. Forgiveness and repentance cannot happen apart from truth telling. This is hard for everybody because we, like, we don't like to comment about the truth when it comes to ugly sin. We try to avoid it. Um, it's, I'd, I'd say uh, the older you get and the further you are away from when that ugliness happened, the easier it is to act as if it never happened and to never actually pursue repentance and forgiveness. Um, I was talking to someone recently and commented on something, I think, truthfully. And they, they just said, that's a strong way of putting it. But I think sometimes when we're talking about the ugliness of sin, to tell the truth about it is uncomfortable. And it, we see how bad we are because when we tell the truth about what we've done and how much forgiveness we need. I don't know that I can stress this enough that a lot of forgiveness has to begin with truth telling. If you don't start there, then there's nothing to forgive, or at least you aren't dealing with what needs to forgive appropriately. Um, we need to expose rather than cover up with excuses or half-truths. We need to speak truly about the offense. Um, just want that to sit with you because I think apart from that starting point, the rest of this won't work. Um, if Jesus didn't identify us as sinners, what meaning does the cross have? How can we connect his forgiveness to anything meaningfully? When you need to receive forgiveness, so when you need to repent to someone, if you're not willing to tell the truth about why you need forgiveness, you're not going to be truly repentant and they aren't going to be able to really forgive. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm sorry, I sort of slipped up over here and I wasn't as nice as I could have been versus whatever the truth is, can you forgive? No, you might say I forgive you for slipping up, but then always you're sort of thinking that person didn't repent and they're still, that's the way I'm viewing them as the person who did blank. Um, in relationships, often we don't remember the truth very well. We like to lock things away. And so often truth telling, especially, you know, relationally takes place through conversation, through remembering. And that forced conversation where both are willing to admit the truth lays a beautiful foundation for a cooperative relationship of unity and harmony. But if everyone's resistant to truth telling, forgiveness is always going to be stifled. Number two, when someone's coming to you and they've truly repent, they're naming their offense, they're asking you for forgiveness, this is what we must do. We must take pity. We must act in compassion. We must look at them and not see them primarily as the perpetrator of just that thing, but as all of who they are is a mixed bag of good and bad. And more than that, we need to see how we share some of those same inclinations, particularly the ones that they, to sin that they committed against us. That's not a natural thing to do. Our hearts want to concentrate only on how bad the wrongdoer is and how, on how much they deserve to suffer. But the king, representing God, thinks of the perpetrator not just as a villain, but as a human being with his own fears and griefs. When people wrong you, you need to Take pity on them. Relate to them as human beings. That too is hard. Um, I think particularly when it comes to family members, when you have to forgive family members, because you can probably easily see in your family member shared characteristics that you hate about them, and you don't want to admit that you also have some of those. So then you just don't look on them with pity. 
you, you know, you don't want to admit, okay, I could be just as inclined. We share a lot of DNA and we're all sinners, but we've got to take pity. Think of them as a full human being. Three, absorb the debt. Forgiveness means that when you want to make them suffer, instead you refuse to do it. It's not forgetting that anything happened, but it's refusing to make them suffer. That refusal is hard. It's difficult and costly, but through it, you're absorbing the debt yourself. Some think that by remaining angry, they are giving the wrongdoers what they deserve. But in reality, you are enabling their actions to continue to hurt you, sometimes for decades after they've stopped committing those actions. You allow those same actions to travel through time and continue to hurt you. Um, if instead, bit by bit by bit, you grant forgiveness in this way, eventually you'll begin to feel forgiveness. So often I'll talk about having a demeanor of forgiveness because we do need to grant forgiveness as like a one-time action, but we have to continue to grant it bit by bit by bit by bit anytime we are tempted, tempted to take that offense personally again. Um, we've, we absorb the debt. We don't make other people pay. Um, four, release the offending party. Now, we're going to get to some nuance on this, and we know that nuance has to be had because of the way the parable continues when this guy violates the spirit of forgiveness with the second debtor, right? So we don't see the king ignoring justice. But we, so we take releasing the offending party, and we recognize the reality of consequences of justice, and part of this class is to help us know how to fit all of those things together. But when the man showed repentance. The relationship between the man and the king was restored. The man was no longer a debtor and a violator of the king's trust, but a citizen and servant again. And I sort of want to suggest that when we look at this servant being thrown into prison, when he's called to account by the king later on, it's not because of the financial debt that he owed, but because of the way he treated the other creditor. So it's not that the same offense is being brought up and he's going to prison for that, but he's going to prison for not living as a kingdom citizen. Okay. Um, but he was fully restored. As we'll see, forgiving and pursuing justice must go hand in hand. In fact, if you don't forgive a person, your justice seeking will likely veer into the territory of revenge. The relationship between justice and forgiveness is complicated. I guess I've already say, said this, but the parable shows that anyone who truly forgives as the king does is open to reconciliation, to the restoration of the relationship. Now we'll see that restoration and full reconciliation isn't always possible because there are multiple parties involved. Um, forgiveness is not the same thing as restoration of trust. These are nuances that we will have to grab onto. Um, but um, the restoration is dependent on the response of the one to whom forgiveness is extended. So to forgive then is to first name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable rather than merely excusing it. Second, it is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different from you he or she is. It is to will their good. Third, it is to release the wrongdoer from the liability by absorbing the debt oneself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back. Finally, it is to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. Um, quick side note, when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, he's not saying open yourself up to be hurt again, invite more offenses against you. No, turning the other cheek means you move forward towards the person, you don't run away from them. Um, you move forward with a spirit of forgiveness, warmth, and affection. Uh, we'll maybe talk about that more. Um, finally, it's to aim for re reconciliation. I just read that. If you admit any one of these four actions, you're not engaging in real forgiveness. Think about that. 
disagree with it maybe if you want. We don't have time to debate about it here. But if you admit any one of those four actions, you're not operating with kingdom-like forgiveness, God-like forgiveness. Um, very briefly, again, you have notes, so you, you can look at the rest of this. But there are different dimensions to forgiveness that show up here. There's the vertical forgiveness vertical dimension, God who forgives us, the king who forgives us. Um, There's an internal dimension of forgiveness uh, where even before someone repents to us, we can grant forgiveness to anyone who wronged us. This takes place in us. And you'll notice that the beginning of the church discipline text, the initiative for pursuing reconciliation is on the person who has sinned against. That's, That's odd in our thinking. Um, But in that context where we are taking initiative, we're a forgiving people, um, we have to forgive first before we point out the offense so we can pursue justice and not vengeance. Um, And then finally, there's a horizontal dimension of forgiveness or the relational aspect of forgiveness where we offer to reconcile. We, We connect our internal forgiveness and God's vertical forgiveness to the relationships with people who have sinned against us. Um, There are some questions that Keller asked there that I think would be good for you to read and reflect on, to think about, about your own relationship with forgiveness and your own um, life of forgiveness. But the parable ends with a picture of the prison of unforgiveness. Um, Now, we could take that picture multiple ways. One is God's eternal judgment. I think that's one way of taking it. But I think another and helpful way of taking it is illustrating the fact that a lack of forgiveness always leads to imprisonment. Um, We can think of imprisonment by the king, but more particularly, we can think of the imprisonment of allowing that sin to reign. There's a different king on the throne than the forgiving king. There's the king's sin. Um, The final act of the parable seems harsh, but it's realistic. The self-centeredness that grows when you stay angry at somebody, when you hold things against them, when you continue to regard them as if they're liable to you and they owe you, is a prison. That's That's reality. And sometimes it has relatively small effects. Real, real fast illustration. Um, when I was a kid growing up, maybe my dad was like every dad. He would take us fishing, and he was always really hard on us when we went, went fishing. And I ended up hating fishing. And I didn't want to ever go fishing as an adult because I thought my dad was mean, and he needed to apologize, and I didn't really want to forgive about that. Um, and... Also, the the bitterness grows and you're like, what if I went fishing and I loved it? I don't want him to feel like he instilled a love for fishing in me because I hated it when I went with him. As I was reading this book at the start of the summer, I was like, that's something really stupid that I just need to forgive. I don't need to talk to him about it. I just need to forgive. I did. I went fishing. I've gone fishing like 50 times this summer and it's awesome. Fishing is fun. So sometimes they're just really dumb prisons that you keep yourself in, the prison of not enjoying a nice day and wetting a line and pulling in a fish. But often it's far more serious than that. We imprison ourselves in sin committed against us. Um, The only way that we can forgive is when we think about the implications of the forgiving king in the parable, because the king became a servant, a servant who bore the cost of all of our sin and he took our debt, he bore our offense. Um, Jesus doesn't hold your sin against you. Even as you can't use that as an excuse to keep on sinning because of the prison thing at the end. So you see how there's like, there's not the bad theology of free grace that says I can do whatever I want because it doesn't matter. Um, That's not how true forgiveness works. 
but we see how costly it was for God to forgive us in Jesus. And that motivates us to live as forgiven people in the kingdom. But we see that the king became the servant ultimately in his sacrificial death on the cross. And when it comes to our forgiveness of others, we shortchange King Jesus's act of service and his ownership of our debt when we stand in his place as king, sitting in judgment of others and refusing to forgive them. But when we reflect on Jesus's self-giving on our behalf, it exalts us out of our bitterness, allowing us to say to those who have sinned against us, I've been justified and adopted in Jesus Christ. You've harmed me and I will confront you about it. I will speak the truth about it but you can't take away my real goods and my deepest joys, and then you can forgive. We have two minutes, one minute. We have 30 seconds. Anything you want to follow up on? I used the You You used it, yeah, everyone gets two questions and you're, you went out. We'll forgive you in an unlimited way, but we won't grant you unlimited questions. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> great. Um, Again, I encourage you to pick up the book. I encourage you to take these notes, to reflect on this, think about it. And then as you reflect on these things, maybe you'll be like me, where I started to realize that I have a forgiveness problem. And I want to say that the pastors are here to talk to you and to try to help you think about that. Other church members are a resource in this way. Um, It's really hard to work through particular situations. Part of forgiveness is not posting it on your social media and saying, I'm really trying to forgive this person who did all these bad things. So we don't air everything, but sometimes it is helpful to find counsel and a person to talk to. So don't be afraid to do that if you're working through these things and realizing maybe God is calling you to be a more forgiving person than you are. Let me, let me pray and then we'll be done. God, we thank you for Jesus who offers us forgiveness, who bore our debt. And even as we, in our service, receive our um, confession of sin and our assurance of pardon, may it be all the more meaningful to us as we've reflected on this this morning. And would you grant that we become deeply forgiving people who recognize and hold together justice without vengeance, forgiveness without limit. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks. We'll pick this up next week.